service this morning. Certainly the song service has been encouraging in one of worship. Enjoyed that song very much, Zach, this morning. Second Peter chapter 3 is where we will be in just a few moments. I must say, at least this morning, a congratulations to Lauren. Last chance I get to embarrass her. I've been embarrassing her since, goodness, 2012 when they joined the church. She was a little kid then, just graduated college and off this week to a new life, a new adventure in Washington, D.C. I'm not sure about that, but she's taking an internship up there at a conservative think tank, and hopefully we'll work that into work there. She and her sister, way back in the days of debate, I was changing some things in my office the other day and I found the news article where YouTube goobers made it to nationals and came in second in the nation in debate uh, back when we had a little small Christian school here and uh, both of them are a blessing but Lauren we wish you well uh, we pray the Lord's protection upon you and she must really love what she's doing because mom and dad and the rest of the family are going to Italy this week for a family vacation and she's ditching that to go to this internship I think I would have taken Italy and not the internship God bless you. Good luck and certainly congratulations as well. Well, 2 Peter chapter 3, and I have to get it out of the way now. I have to put these on now. <laughs> this is the last you'll ever hear of me for the next 50 years of my life that I'm on this earth. But the day has finally come at 45 where my wife says that for you to get the pure word of God, I need to get some spectacles for my eyes. So I can make sure I read them. I made it to 45 before I had to do this. But let's go and look in 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. And we'll read together in chapter 3 and verse 1. We'll read the entire chapter this morning. As we're looking at different homes. And we're going to begin looking at the responsibilities of those homes. The Bible says in verse number 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. In both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. That ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles, and of the Lord our Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of. That by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand, a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be? In all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. 
the count that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or struggle with, as they do also all do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Father, this morning we come to you understanding that the Bible is our source of hope. It is our source of help. And on this day we come as homes. Oh, they may be young homes. They may be individuals who are looking to establish homes someday. They may be homes who are gathered here that are full with children running about. They may be homes who have kids who have graduated and moved on out of life. But Lord, we are homes nonetheless. Homes that need to depend upon the book. The book alone. Some of what will be preached today will be hard to hear. Lord, as we look at the eternal responsibilities that are ours in our homes, may we never shirk from those responsibilities. May we hold fast the form of doctrine that has been given to us. May we understand the truth that is revealed in the pages of this book. Help us today to see how we, as believers, can and should be different. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If this series occurred in a book format... I would be preaching this morning on the role of a man because last week I preached on the role of a woman. Unfortunately, holidays and the seasons demand that we have to wait on the role of a man until Father's Day. So some of you men, whew, you avoided the trouble that I stirred last week. This morning I want us to begin looking at a series of responsibilities instead that different homes have as part of their makeup. Your home has these responsibilities, as does my home. The responsibility that we will be looking at today are the eternal responsibilities of a different home. This morning's message will be direct. I'm not intending in the message to condemn any one of your homes, as I'm not trying to condemn my own home, where Jessica and I struggle in some of these areas. Rather, my responsibility is that of Nathan the prophet, and that is to confront you with truth and allow God the Holy Spirit to work that truth deep into our hearts and into our minds so that we might understand what thus saith the Lord. Peter here in this chapter addresses eternal responsibility. This is the last chapter likely that Peter wrote in the New Testament in his time on this earth. And truthfully, in verses 3 through 8, we live in that reality where there are scoffing men, scoffing women, the intellectuals of this world who will say to us, how dare you believe in the God of this book? How dare you believe that there is a time coming when all of this will be consumed? How foolish of you, how foolhardy of you. We live in those days today. Why on earth would you attempt to live your life 
by the word of God. We have noted in the first two messages in this series that we can look around at the world that we find ourselves in and say the logic of their reasoning has proven to be a disaster. It's produced nothing profitable for our culture or our society. And so while our beliefs may be lambasted by them, it does not mitigate the truth of them. We are to live godly in our present generation. We live in the trap of the temporal. Far often we as believers, and especially parents, get caught up exclusively in the temporal realm. We convince ourselves, and by extension our children in our homes, that the things of this earth are all that matter. We live in that trap that the eternal things are never going to come to fruition. They're never going to be realized. We even ask if the Lord will ever return. You realize Peter, in his day, in the writing of this, assumed Jesus Christ would return in glory in his lifetime? We're 2,000, almost 2,000 years on from his writing of this. Why on earth would we believe it then? It hasn't happened! And we understand the grounds upon which the scoffers come. We're no different, by the way, when we live this way than the scoffers of verse number three. We live as if the eternal things are of no significance to us. Yet I remind us this morning we are called to be different, which means being focused on the eternal things of God in this present life. You know, the easy thing for us to do is to focus on the eternal things of God beyond this life and just live as we want right now. But that's not true Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. What then are the eternal things? I won't ask you to answer it aloud, but for a moment, stop and think. What are the things that are truly important on the eternal scale? Is my house important? Perhaps how you use that stewardship or manage that asset that God has given to you has some eternal significance. But may I say to you, your house has no significance to God. Your job has no significance to God. Your kid's t-ball trophy has no significance to God. What matters to God is what you do with the eternal things of value and worth in this life. Right. So what then are they? What should we be teaching and what should we be focusing on then in our homes? Is it just upon the happiness and the harmony that can exist there? No, I would argue it's the holiness that should be present there is where our focus should be. Beginning in verse number 9 of First Peter or 2 Peter 3, we find Peter lays out our eternal responsibilities and he begins number one with salvation. I would be a horrible Baptist preacher if I did not point out the need for salvation. Mom and dad, parents among us, if you are raising children and not teaching them the importance of salvation, you are robbing them of the opportunity to live up, a, live up in a godly life or in a godly way. God is both wanting and waiting for souls to be saved. Look what verse 9 says again. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. The usward here is the whole of humanity or the race of mankind. His patience and endurance is towards us. That does not mean that he agrees with us in our sinfulness. It just means that God in his holiness is willing to be patient because he understands just how far we've fallen from his holy standard. 
Why is he so long-suffering? Verse 9 continues, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His long-suffering nature is so that we, as a race, have an opportunity to repent of our sins. God is wanting and waiting for souls to be saved. Peter indicates that he is delaying his return because he is long-suffering, not wanting any to perish. Salvation comes when we understand the two sides of repentance. What are they? Well, they're given to us throughout the Word of God, but letter A in our notes, it is the idea that we would establish what sin is. Now, if I had a month of Sundays, I could take and explain to you the breadth of sin. The word sin in the New Testament comes from a word harmatia in the original language that simply means missing the mark. I was talking with some of our hunting guys up here on the front row this morning about turkey hunting and deer hunting. And I noted in my own conversation or my thinking that when I miss the deer, that is the idea of harmatia. When I miss the turkey and he gets away, and if I went hunting with them, there would be a lot of them that would get away. But the turkey that gets away and my shot put on it is a harmatia. It misses the mark. That's what sin means. It means to miss God's mark. That means there's a standard. There's an expectation. There is a life that he wants for us to live. And when we choose to live apart from that standard, we are sinning. That's what it means to sin. The word repentance at the end of verse 9 teaches us this truth. Repentance requires that I understand what my sin is. I have to establish sin in my life. That doesn't mean I have to establish the pattern of sinning. I have to know what is sin and what is not sin. It's a Bible truth that we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 3, verses 10 and 23, it teaches us that there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Yet many of our Christian homes have parents living in sin and raising their kids unaware of sin. That's why our country and our culture is in the shape that it's in today. There's no amount of red-faced preaching I can do from behind this desk that will change how you live until you decide to change how you live. Right. You've got to establish what sin is and understand that God doesn't like it. The only way past our sin is through repentance. Yet over and over again, we capitulate on sinful behavior and practices saying we ought to love the sinner. But hate the sin. Can I tell you something? God does hate sin, and God sent his only beloved son to die for sinners. That's how much he loves sinners. But God does not love sinners living in their sin. He loves to save sinners from their sin. And so often we forget that. Sin brings death, we're told in the book of James, for mankind. And we're told throughout the New Testament epistles that sin brings both distance and destruction for the believer if we engage in it. Why then do we as believers in our homes entertain sin? Why do we engage in sin? Why do we embrace sin? Why do we tolerate it? Salvation changes us because in salvation we understand we do not want the rewards of sin. The rewards or what the wage of sin is, is death, Paul tells the Romans. The wages of sin is death. 
But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The eternal values, the eternal responsibilities in your home is that you, moms and dads, you, husbands and wives, you teaching one another and then your children, that lineage that God gives you, that sin is bad and that it's wrong and should be avoided. Why do we try to argue that sin in our lives or in the lives of our kids is okay? Once we establish sin, we must, let her be, explain atonement. Repentance has this. We understand that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. I've got to repent. But the other side of repentance is that it's been paid for. In our homes, in our own lives, in our daily conversations throughout the community that we find ourselves, we cannot explain why God would allow for sinners to be atoned for, but he does. That's not what we must explain. What we must explain, or our task to explain, is what does atonement mean? You know, a lot of our kids, especially, do not understand what it means to have atonement. I grew up in a church. I grew up at Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. It wasn't until I finished college, after being kicked out of a Bible college, and going off in my own life and my own journeys, working for the government in many different capacities, that I experienced and lived in sin, and I realized what atonement really meant. And sadly, a lot of Christian homes, and my parents did their best. My mom and dad are members of the church here. They're wonderful people. They did their best to teach my sister and I what it meant to be a sinner, but also what it meant to receive salvation through, through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But not every kid growing up in a Christian home can see just how bad sin is until you explain atonement to them. Atonement is the key. What is atonement then? It simply means that our sins, however many or however few, are paid for by Christ. Here's how Peter himself in his first letter says it to those that he was writing to in 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who then, uh, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to, committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. In other words, he committed himself to his father that he was sinless, dying for the sinful. Notice the next verse. Who, his own self, this is what atonement means. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. That's a direct Correlation to Isaiah chapter 53 of the lamb that was led to the slaughter for the sins of the whole world. Peter would say in the very next chapter in 1 Peter, in verse number 18 of chapter 3, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit. Your sins have been atoned for through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Salvation by nature then makes us new or different in Christ Jesus. I find it odd that I would have to preach this message, but I realize the condition of our present culture that I should preach this message. We have our sins paid for. Why should we continue to sin? The answer is we shouldn't continue to sin. 
We accept Christ's payment for our sins, and that's a blessing. And since we are different by the fact of salvation, then we ought to be different. We ought to live differently. We ought to think differently than the unbelieving world around us. Yet so many Christians, so many of our Christian homes do not. God is not looking for perfect Christians. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying this morning. Don't take this as condemnation, just as confrontation. He's not looking for you to be perfectly sinless. That will not happen until glory. But he is saying to you, why did you want the gift in the first place? He wants us to come, and it is required that we come by repentance. Establishing the fact of sin and explaining the need for a Savior is what Peter is talking about here. He desires maturing Christians who live for eternal Values And those eternal values initiate, they begin when the home, the husband and the wife and the children trust Christ as their Savior. For some of us, that was years ago. But it doesn't change that moment of salvation. That is the eternal value, and we are responsible to both live it and learn it in our daily lives. Amen. Salvation is the first eternal responsibility to be learned and lived. The second is sanctification. It's almost as if Roger's Sunday school lesson was directly drawn from the message this morning. I promise we did not collude on this with Russia or anyone else. <laughs> if we keep reading in verse number 10, it's one of my favorite verses, verses 10 and 11 in all of the Bible. They're essential verses. And you say, really? Yeah, read it with me again. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing, then, that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Do you know what he's saying in verse number 10? Peter is giving a prophetic projection of how it will all end. Well, how will it all end? With fire. Now, we nerds out there, I used to be quite a nerd, and then I got married and I became cool. But the point is, we nerds out there, if you study these words and you study these verses or these passages of Scripture, we find some very interesting truths being talked about here. Peter makes this prophetic reference to how the temporal realm, this realm that we presently inhabit, will end. It's in a cataclysmic fire, dissolving everything, even to the base of atomic elements. That's what the word elements means here. The word for elements actually in the original Greek, the Koine Greek, has a reference to the fundamental particles, the base material, or the original order of all things. In other words, God's going to set to press the button and he's going to do away with everything in this present creation. Everything. You mean everything, everything? I mean everything, everything. Well, could you explain it further? I would love to explain it further. That's all we get in this verse. That it's going to be melted down to its base. Now, I read a wonderful article years ago in my deep nerdery, and that was this. That it's likely a black hole. If you look at it, this is exactly how, I don't know, do you like to watch the History Channel and some of these programs like How the World Will End, right? Uh, good luck to you if you like to watch those. But they always come up with like the top ten ways the earth is going to end, right? Somewhere on that list is always high is global warming. I can promise you this. There is going to come a point where the globe is going to get very warm. 
Right? So they're right in a certain sense. Probably not in the political paradigm that they're using right now. But in a certain sense, they're correct. It is all going to come to end in a cataclysmic fire. But if you study what a black hole does, it would suck away the oxygen of our atmosphere into its black hole. And there would be a constant sound, almost as if, of a vacuum sound. It would be a great noise. And what would happen? Everything would be compressed into the tiniest of particles so that literally down to the smallest atom or photon of light would not escape. Is that how God's going to destroy it all? I don't know. Maybe. That's the closest me personally have, have, I've ever come up with to figuring out what this verse means. The answer is we don't know. But here's what we do know from this verse. Our sanctification is not dependent upon anything in this world. Your eternal responsibility is not to have the highest paying job or the most influential political position or power. It is not to have all of the, the friends that you can have and all the toys that you might be given. None of them are inherently bad, but that is not what you live for. Far too many Christian homes are teaching their young people that you live for the best 401k. Jessica and I are good savers, and we've tried our whole life to be disciplined as a married couple to save the money that God has blessed us with. But we don't live for that money. Neither should you. A Christian sanctification is the process of becoming less like man and more like God. We have positionally been saved through Christ's blood. That's his atonement. But we must progressively move closer to the image and likeness of Christ. That is a New Testament principle. You begin in the book of Romans after the history of the church in Acts and go all the way to the book of Revelation and you will find that God's desire for the believer, husband or wife or child in the home, the believer is to draw closer to Christ and become formed to his image. Peter sets that argument within the logical question, why would you want to be like a world that is going to be burned up? And yet far too often in our homes, that's not the message that is delivered. We've got to keep up with the Joneses. Listen, the Joneses can't even keep up with the Joneses. There's no better way to look at all the pleasures, all the temptations, all the trappings of this world than to realize that God values none of these worldly things. He will literally burn them up in a moment. How important then is that car or truck? I put on here boat. I don't know if anybody owns a boat. House. How valuable is that necklace, the fine china, or your next purchase on Amazon? How significant is the T-ball trophy or the ballet ribbon or the next touchdown they score? And all of those things are not evil. My point is, when we live only for those, we've missed the mark. Far too many homes are living only for those. I give my own example. Some of you have heard me say this many times. My parents will vouch for this. I was a pretty doggone good soccer player in my day, but my parents set the boundaries on that. Kyle, you're not going to go away and get scholarships and go and play or try to pursue, pursue this professionally because that is a temporal and fleeting thing. I couldn't miss Sunday church for a soccer game because my dad said, that's not what we're living for. Oh, but dad, I'm really good. And I was. 
Kids are still amazed when I show them the newspaper article of scoring seven goals in a soccer game once. How do you do that? And the answer is just one at a time. But you don't live for those things. Except to tell the stories years later when you're preaching a message. <laughs> the point is that these things are not bad. But rather, we must mind or focus on the fact that we cannot be motivated to live by and for them. They are things. They are passing fancies. They are temporal. They are not eternal. What then should motivate us? What moves us in this life? What kind of thinking makes us different? First, there is the sanctifying mindset of embracing holiness. Look in verse number 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in what? All holy conversation. The word conversation here is not the word of communicating with voice. It is the mode or manner of our conduct, how we conduct ourselves. How should you live in all holy conduct? And in godliness or godlikeness. Since all this world will be dissolved, what is important, Peter says? And the answer is holiness and godliness first. That means you and I want to live like God. He is by his nature holy. He is not touched by sin. He is altogether the opposite of sin. Peter's effectively asking us to choose. Since all that we see, hold, and have will be gone someday, why would you let those things rule your lives? Why would, they, why would you let them ruin your lives? And not allow God's eternal holiness to captivate and challenge us day by day. Peter then points out our sanctification from embracing holiness to let her be exuding, or it should exude, righteousness. In verse 12, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, or don't worry about that, is what the word nevertheless means. We, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Verse 13 could easily read, because of this fact, what fact? It's all going to be dissolved. Because of this we should look for what is right Amen. and righteous. Of course, true righteousness is, our, is only found in Jesus Christ. Thus, Peter couches that expectation in the newness of God's person and presence in what he's going to make for us, a new heaven and a new earth. You could go and read of these new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. And we look at Revelation 22, and we would like, if you read it, to say, Lord, keep telling us more about what the new is going to be like. And he says, just wait till you get here. Life is not lived pining for that world. Life is lived preparing for that world. It's to be lived right now in sanctification. We are to be exuding the righteousness that every act will take on in heaven right here today. That's what God desires for us. If we are anticipating righteousness forever, as Peter here writes, as a joy and a satisfaction that comes to us, why would we not want to live righteously now? And that is the dilemma for most Christians, isn't it? We know we ought to do right. But we don't. That's why there's a Bible verse. It's wonderful. And I use it often, especially with my boys. Sometimes I use it in counseling. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Oof. Man, oh man, right? Well, I know that's good. Well, then you know what's righteous. I'm just not going to do it. Then you're choosing to sin. 
Pastor, it's not that black and white. Listen, friend, it is always that black and white. Now, I will admit to you that most of our lives are lived in the gray. But the truth is always black and white. God never stutters in what he is establishing for us to do. And if we're going to truly have different homes, we're going to put a first fo our first focus on the eternal responsibilities that we should be accomplishing. Righteousness is simply right actions, engaging in right choices, circumstance by circumstance. Here's how Paul writes of it in Ephesians 4 and verse 20. He says, ye have not so learned Christ. The word but is there because the sentence before or the paragraph before in Ephesians talks about living in the lasciviousness and the own corruption of our own lives. He said, look, you can't live that way and call yourself a Christian. You have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him, you're hearing it this morning, and have been taught by him, you're being taught it this morning, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed, where? In the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. There are those two aspects again, exactly what Peter dealt with. You can see why it is in verses 15 and 16 he likens or references the passages that Paul wrote of this mystery. Because he's saying to us the process of sanctification is no different whether Paul's teaching it or Peter's teaching it or 2,000 years later Kyle is teaching it. It's righteousness and true holiness. I often talk with believers and hear this. Well, Kyle, what's so wrong about it? Please do not raise your hand. But have you ever made that statement? Yes, your hand is probably like mine. He said, don't raise it, but I, I kind of got to. What's so wrong about it? My answer, and some have been in my office when they've asked me that question, is always, you tell me what's right with it. I like my question better. Don't go around in my world to trying to tell me or in this world that we presently walk in and tell me, well, I don't think it's that wrong. What's wrong with it? Why don't you first establish if you're going to act in a certain way, what is right and righteous in it? When you can prove that, then you can do it. I don't like to live that way. I know our nature and our flesh never does. If your home is operating by what's wrong with it, then you are on the wrong side of the argument. Because you are arguing, how close can I get to Satan, and how far can I be from my Savior? The serpent fooled Eve in the garden with the same question. What's wrong with eating a little fruit? The Lord knows when you eat it, you'll be just like him. Was she? I mean, she knew evil and good, but that's the only way she became like God. In every other way, she lost out on her innocence and perfection. So you must ask yourself this morning, is the music... The movies, the friends, the activities, the relationships that I have making me more like my Savior or more like Satan. Well, it's not that cut and dry. I'm, I'm afraid it is. And I told you at the beginning of this message, I warned you, you had a chance, you'd have to walk out. And my responsibility is to confront. Believe me, I confront myself much more often than I confront you about these areas of holiness and righteousness. Our eternal existence is in holiness, or the character of God, and in righteousness, the conduct of God. That's how we will be for the rest of time. Do you suppose that he wants us to wait 
until heaven to begin, begin living righteously? And the answer is most emphatically no. Our lives are to exude the righteousness of Christ right now, right here, today. Amen. But, but, but pastor, Christ dined with sinners. He came to the harlots and the reprobates and the wretched of this world, didn't he? Yeah. And in every instance, he taught them to go and sin no more. He didn't engage in their sins and say, isn't this fun? And yet we find homes. Parents alike engage in such activity. Peter gives salvation and sanctification as eternal responsibilities that are to be both learned and lived in a different home. The final eternal responsibility is surrender. From verses 14 through 18, we see the effect of a surrendered soul. Not one that's fighting, but one that is willing to surrender. Peter makes a call to surrender beginning in verse number 14. The Bible says, wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, what things are we looking for? Righteousness, holiness, and godliness. But he talked about in verse 11 and 13. He says, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. We find that in surrender, it begins with earnest obedience. The word diligence has the idea of earnest or zeal to it. I am going to put my full self into doing this thing. So I ask this morning, are you willing to obey God? Peter tells us that it takes diligence to be found of him. Notice that little phrase that is there in verse number 14. That ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. In our flesh we are found of ourselves. Yielded to and controlled by the Holy Spirit, we are found of him. The word of carries the idea of flowing forth or emanating from. This takes tremendous spiritual willpower, by the way. You must die to yourself. Zach in the men's prayer breakfast yesterday did a wonderful challenge from Ephesians chapter number 5 and verse 18. The idea or the concept of being filled with the Spirit. The word be present, passive, and imperative in its sense. It takes willpower to say no to myself and to say yes to God. Right. This goes again to the issue I have with what's wrong with it mentality. We are to be found of him, not of ourselves. And when we ask perpetually, well, I don't see anything wrong with it. What do you think is wrong with it? We are asking, how far can I slouch? How far can I slide? And the question really should be returned. I don't know how far do you want to slide? Where do you want to go? Well, Pastor, I don't want to live to your standard. I'm not asking you to live to my standard. But if you're asking me the question, what's wrong with it, you are already admitting there's something inherently wrong with it. This is why our culture is in the shape it is. It's because the Christians are in the shape that we're in. We often want to blame groups or segments of our society for the problems that we have. No, friend. Problems are always just staring us in the mirror. Well, I don't know, if I change my life and clean my life up, I'm not sure what, it would, what good it would do. It'll do you a lot of good and all the people you influence. Right. When you start living by eternal values and responsibilities. That surrender to him supplies us with peace, with purity, and with a testimony, we're told. 
We yield our lives to God, and then he yields or produces within our lives a peace that passes understanding, a purity that is without spot, no blemishes in it, and a witness that is honest before the eyes of men. It is a clear testimony, blameless. In our home, our boys knew from a young age and still to this day know this phrase, obedience brings, and he said blessings. I would have looked it through, but I couldn't find it. He was buried back there with Gabriel. There he is. Obedience brings blessings. All Peter is saying right here is, if you will obey God, God will abundantly bless you. But it's going to take diligence on your part. Right. It's earnest obedience, not casual. Well, hey, I happened to stumble into church this morning. Congratulations to me. <laughs> That's how we approach it, isn't it? I do wonder sometimes if God in heaven is thinking, really? That's what you think the height of your achievement spiritually could be? Your success and influence on the world could be that? Hey, I made it to hear the guy yell at me again. God wants you to grow spiritually. Disobedience brings disappointment in a home. For the young people and for the mom and dad. Parents, if you are hoping for obedience from your kid, good luck. Don't hope. Instead, try expecting it. When kids learn to obey you, they learn to obey authority, and they ultimately learn to obey God. But if they can't obey you, and they throw off everything you say to them, and they are dismissive of your direction, friend, good luck in five years when they're out of the house. It will not go well. Well, it's the church's fault. Probably because we maybe didn't intercede when we solved problems sooner. Well, I'll anger Johnny if I do this, or, or if I put the kibosh on that. Or if I expect obedience now, Pastor, what good would it do? A world of good, friend, try it. By the way, I have a Hebrew word for those that don't want to upset their kids. Hogwash. <laughs> you have to look it up in the deep dictionaries of Hebrew. Young people are leaving the faith in droves for two reasons. And I have studied this. I've been a pastor now for almost 14 years. I've studied this in earnest. Why our Christian culture is fading in America. It's two reasons. One, because their homes no longer teach surrender in the form of diligent, earnest obedience. And two, because there is no distinction between the holy and the profane in their own homes. Those are the two reasons. Prove me wrong that there's another. Surrender means earnest obedience, which produces, let her be, excelling growth. We didn't skip over, but I did bypass verses 15, 16, and 17. Essentially, what Paul is dealing with there is as you go about being diligent in your obedience, there are going to be times where you will stumble in your faith. That's okay. Don't be wavering. He said, don't fall into the error of the wicked in the, verse of, or in the middle of verse 17. In fact, he says, beware. That you're not led away in the in, in the in the sense of, the sense of moving away in your obedience to Almighty God. Be obedient to the Word of God, faithful to the Word of God. Be steadfast in that, because there are a lot of people who are trying to wrest away your attention from God. The world, the devil, and your flesh hate that you are trying to live spiritually. So do it. Live spiritually. 
In verse number 18, we find a verse that many of us know so well. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever. Both now and forever, I should say. Amen. What does it mean then to excel in growth? It means first to grow in grace. To grow in grace is to grow in our appreciation of the grace that we have been given. The more we learn about ourselves and the sinfulness in this world, the more we will appreciate all that Christ has done for us. This causes an ever-deepening appreciation for his love and for his sacrifice for us and encourages us to show Christ's grace then to others. That's what it means to grow in grace. The second, he says, is to grow in knowledge or in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. That is a mastery of this book. To grow in knowledge is to grow in our understanding of who Christ is, what Christ has done for us, and how we are to make adjustments to our fallen nature. You have heard many confrontational statements this morning on that matter. It is through this that Jesus Christ and the Godhead together will be most glorified, both now and forever. What many of us Christians and many of our homes are doing is waiting until forever, and we'll glorify you then. He says, no, be glory to him now. And forever. As we excel in our growth through surrendering our selfish, sinful natures to him, we will see great joy and impact on the world around us. I am still convinced that the world has yet to see in the last 50 years one church of one group of people, families that say we're all in on obeying God. And if we ever saw it, the world would be once again turned upside down. We just end up having homes and believers that don't believe it's their responsibility to do it. And I would contend it is our responsibility. All God's Holy Spirit is waiting to do is to pour himself out fully through one church. Amen. So in closing, a different home has eternal responsibilities. We live, yes, in this temporal realm. We walk this earthly sojourn, but our homes and our lives in Jesus Christ are not being built for this world. A chief responsibility is to be building homes that have eternal value, with eternal significance. The eternal responsibilities include salvation, sanctification, and service. Father, help us, I pray, as we close our thoughts this morning.